Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Turkey Book Talk. Thanks for joining. I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul. In this podcast, we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. This is episode number 105. If you haven't already, do consider supporting the podcast by signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Becoming a member gets you various extras, including transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk via email as soon as the episode is published. I'll also send you transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. IB Taurus, which is part of Bloomsbury Publishing, has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series, including both academic and general interest titles, and Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally, another perk that signed up members get is an archive of 230 one book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of five years and used to be available online but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member all you have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Of course there's not many sleeps until Christmas now so not long left to treat yourself or indeed someone else to a prestigious Turkey Book Talk membership as a no doubt delightful festive gift. New episodes are published every two weeks, so membership amounts to no more than $6 per month. Of course, if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's get cracking with our latest episode. In it we hear from Bilge Yabanja. She's a Marie Curie fellow at the Centre of Southeast European Studies in the University of Graz. And she's also the author of a paper recently published in the journal Ethnopolitics called Work for the Nation, Obey the State, Praise the Umar, Turkey's Government-Oriented Youth Organisations in Cultivating a New Nation. The article explores the very close, actually often umbilical relationship between the ruling Justice and Development Party and over a dozen youth organisations that share its goal of shepherding Turkey down an increasingly religious, nationalist and conservative course. The research was based on original fieldwork Bilge conducted over the course of almost two years. In this conversation, we talk about the funding of such groups by local municipalities and ministries across Turkey, the deeper ideological currents and social attitudes underpinning them, and EU funding for civil society groups in Turkey a bit later on. But I started by asking Bilge Yabanja how she went about conducting the research. Well, obviously, I I started with doing a bit of desk research to identify um, the organizations I would like to get in touch with. And of course, started to dig a bit on the ministries and what kind of uh, organizations uh, were funded by the Ministry of Youth and Sports and Education Ministry. And uh, meanwhile, of course, there were some kind of anecdotal uh, evidence uh, out of the media reports in Turkey that certain organizations were always uh, organizations working on the youth and education issues were funded constantly. And then I started digging and then I came up with a long list of, of organizations that I uh, labeled 
labeled in the article as government-oriented organizations. Um, and then at the second stage, I started looking at the publications, newsletters, and several uh, periodicals published by these organizations. And at the, the, the last stage, I decided to, of course, uh, go to the field and, and try to make contact with those organizations. And I, I wrote to them. And initially, the response rate was quite low. Uh, but once you kind of make a contact, somehow an initial contact, it somehow snowballs from there. Um, and of course, there are certain public events that those organizations also organize. And I was attending those events to take notes and to talk informally around youngsters and if I can have access to some representatives or volunteers of those organizations. But of course, being a female in rather those gender biased or gender segregated locations is a kind of disadvantage for me because there were certain events, actually the majority of events for only male participants. So I was not able to go to those events. And if it is mixed gender, usually you are separated as male and, and female sections of the same same room. So it is a kind of also physical barrier, a kind of difficulty for the for the fieldwork access. But overall, starting with the female representatives and some uh, informal talks and with some perseverance, you make your way out of there, I guess. Now, the uh, the article focuses on uh, links between various youth organisations, ostensibly independent civil society groups, uh, but uh, all of them are essentially umbilically linked to the government in some form or another. And there is essentially a clientelistic relationship with it, really. Just talking practically about the research there, I mean, are there any meetings or events that you attended or conversations that you had or interviews that you conducted with these representatives that particularly stand out in the mind, you know, as being particularly exemplary? of of this uh, relationship or of a particular mindset that is expressed uh, by these people who you were who you were looking into one occasion that I also it's it's an anecdote that I also mentioned in the paper was when after the interview it was a Friday around noon and after a long interview with the representative of one organization is one of the biggest ones that I have mentioned in the paper also it was a Friday noon noon time and I was about to leave the office and they wanted to show me around and actually they have these book cafes that they they call them where it provides a silent atmosphere a kind of library for youngsters to go there after school or before school and to do their work to work together and they also provide them with some you know coffee and tea and some stuff to nibble on and it's kind of also a socialization and work area and then the representative without asking actually she said like you see this is Friday noontime and you see that our book cafe is full so we do not force uh, youngsters to go uh, for Friday prayer so this was a clear attempt to show me that they are not simply trying to to force them into becoming a practicing Muslims. And I think on its own, it tells a lot about it because what followed, well, basically she was saying that we are after a kind of societal cohabitation and, and just like in the Ottoman times, like living together, according to her, she said that we also have Christian students, non-Muslim students in our in our organization. I think on its own, this was telling quite a lot about, quite contrary to the, to the kind of perception in the media or broader society about these organizations 
organizations that are trying to only, you know, create Islamic or Islamist individuals, uh, they are really not after creating pious individuals practicing in their private lives and go to their homes and pray and work. Moral qualifications that they want in the youngsters is valuable as long as it serves, it complements their loyalty to the state and their nationalism. This was quite telling in my opinion. Several representatives told me that we want to raise youngsters with uh, with a consciousness of nationalist and moral values. We want to cultivate a nationalist and authentic youth. And this is most of the time justified through a kind of apocalyptic and conspiracy-driven depiction of the current country and society is, is under attack by not only the Western or some unknown undefined enemies, but also by societal degeneration. And of course, as a response to this kind of attack and apocalyptic depiction of the society, what they propose is a kind of new generation, a new kind of alternative modernity, uh, a new civilizational imagination. And this was, I think, quite telling about them. You talk in the article about how, quote, youth organizations assume a central role in building the desired cultural hegemony for the government. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it got me thinking, you know, President Erdogan quite often admits or refers to the fact in various speeches that he feels that he's sort of failed in cultural policies, at least, or in the cultural sphere. And uh, whenever Mm -hmm. he says this about culture, people start talking or start wondering um, about what he means. You know, many people speculate that he's perhaps thinking of a broader cultural or social transformation. And um, this is obviously something that's close to the heart of generations, really, of Islamist groups in Turkey, you know, reconstituting society to make it more harmonious in a chaotic and threatening, you know, modern world Mm -hmm. full of sexuality and cultural degeneration and whatnot. And the irony is that today, you know, despite almost 20 years in power with the AK Party, those threats seem more potent than ever to some people. Essentially, government policies have not really brought about a social revolution that uh, many people either hoped for or feared, indeed, Um, You know, there are various social attitude surveys in Turkey that actually indicate more sort of liberal attitudes actually developing on many social issues among uh, the new generations. So with all this being the case, how do uh, youth groups supported by the government fit into this picture? You know, would it be right to think about Mm -hmm. them as a way for the government to effectively re-engineer social attitudes or attempt to Mm re-engineer attitudes and trends Mm -hmm. in a more conservative, religious, Mm -hmm. nationalist uh, direction? Mm-hmm. Erdogan's uh, confession that we have uh, achieved political hegemony but not cultural hegemony now, let's turn to that, was actually uh, declared in one of those organizations that I covered in the paper, Ensar Organization's annual meeting. And this is where I actually started this research because I think the choice of venue was quite telling. Instead of like state taking on uh, or the party taking on all the responsibility of molding the youth in line with the ideology of the new regime and the new imagination of the uh, of the society by the by the AKP, it is going to be shared at least. The burden will be shared at least by those civil society organizations, those associations and foundations. And this was quite telling. So this is the task that has been shouldered by those government oriented youth organizations. And whether they are successful or not is is a long term road to see for us. But um, let's not forget that they have, of course. I mean, what you say is is true 
true that there is a young generation coming up with, with the world through social media technology and they are internalizing liberal values uh, and there is a rising generation of course of this atheism or deism in Turkey among the youngsters it is all true but let's not forget that these government oriented youth organizations they command a vast source of financial and organizational power that are denied to other maybe more autonomous uh, youth organizations and they have grassroots links and organizational presence across all corners of Turkey literally every big city and increasingly provinces so this gives them a lot of power to reach out uh, to the grassroots to different age groups and of course this is a part of the attempt to create this new cultural hegemony to to change the the the, the ideology the, the the political attitude of the youngsters in line with the national values and morality and islamic traditions and here we see that the government is trying to converge the national identity and religious identity and these are considered inseparable and these are considered inseparable for the ideal citizenry that would inherit the regime the, the new turkey in the future in this sense it's very much a continuation or reification of this turkish islamic synthesis that has dominated the right right-wing tradition in turkey since the 1960s within this attempt to create a new cultural hegemony youngsters are also to be shaped on an imagined model of the past a rather construct Ottoman society where everyone you know is assumed to live in peace despite their differences and of course this is just an imagination and underneath of this kind of nostalgia lies an imperial or neo-imperial dream as the panacea for the for societal conflict in Turkey and of course another component of this desire to build a cultural hegemony through the youth is the aim of superseding the western hegemony through creating an alternative civilization or reviving the Islamic civilization and of course in itself it is actually a nationalist, a very nationalist project. Uh, you revive the Islamic civilization by the Turkish youth, so to speak. And 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 because in, in, in the government's imagination, Turkish Islamic civilization and the Western civilization, they are two incompatible blocks. And there is this hidden uh, self-perception of inferiority also vis-a-vis -vis the West. And the promise to supersede the Western hegemony comes as a component of this desire to create alternative hegemony here. Uh, and of course, here comes this to the surface a dilemma. I mean, how to supersede the West without understanding it and at the same time keeping the young generation away from its degenerative effects. And I don't think they, the, these youth organizations have solved this dilemma ever. But I mean, this at the bottom of it, there is this idea also of creating the youngsters in a way, I mean, cultivating the, the national and attending youth generation in a way to counter the Western hegemony while also learning its, its technological advances, but still keeping away from its degenerative effects. And there are a few dilemmas here that are not being solved. So that's why we still don't know to what extent this cultural hegemony project through the youth will succeed or not. Now, the article talks about how a lot of the these groups are given contracts essentially by various mm. government ministries, state ministries, the education ministry particularly is important. And that is really a, a key way that, that sustains them and, and helps them expand and spread influence. Uh, and also, very important, are lo local municipalities. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you write in the article that uh, between 2012 and 2018, uh, nine organizations mm -hmm. working on uh, youth 
youth and education uh, received $250 million worth of immovables from the Istanbul municipality. Mm-hmm. And there are all sorts of other contracts that are dished out to, mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. to these groups. And um, could you just talk about the, the link, really, essentially, between uh, local municipalities and pro-government NGOs mm-hmm. in essentially sustaining them, transferring money and mm-hmm. propagating the kind of ideological project, mm-hmm. I suppose, uh, that you referred to mm-hmm. previously? This is a very actually ambiguous area of the majority of the financial sources that they have are kind of hidden because several of these organizations, they have a status as as a public benefit organization, which allows them actually run quite non-transparent budgets because they are free uh, not to pay taxes and they're also free to accept uh, individual uh, private donations. So their financial resources are quite shadowy area. But what we know, again, through sort of anecdotal evidence or leaked reports from the municipality is that they their financial resources mostly come from state ministries uh, uh, coming from through like project funding through uh, Ministry of Youth and Sports, Ministry of Education through certain protocols and sometimes Ministry of Family and Social Policies. At the local level, since several municipalities have been controlled by the by the AKP government in the last decade, uh, and since these organizations have established a quite impressive organizational presence across Turkey, uh, they have received uh, both financial direct contribution, but also uh, also indirectly in the forms of immovables that they use for for dormitories to, to establish dormitories. They use to establish some 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 offices or to use them as premises to carry out their educational and training activities. This is quite important because the majority of these sources were, of course, coming from big municipalities like Istanbul, and it has become also clear after the Istanbul municipality changed hands. I mean. The, the, the CHP, the major opposition party, has won uh, the Istanbul municipality in the latest local elections. And then the new mayor uh, were, were releasing the information and they they were also cancelling contracts and protocols with several of these uh, pro-government youth organizations in Turkey. One thing that we still don't know to what extent the this, this kind of end of resources from big municipalities like Istanbul or Ankara will affect these groups, but uh, it is important also not to forget, I think, still that the ministries are controlled by the AKP, and I think they will still continue uh, giving the majority of the project uh, funding to those friendly or uh, uh, government-oriented youth organizations. When I speak to also to rather autonomous youth organizations, they have been also complaining to what extent their projects are no longer funded and they are completely cut out of those financial sources that is granted by the ministries. For instance, when they want to do a project about Kurdish youth or LGBTI youth, normally the ministries would not fund them, whatever they propose. But when it comes to those government-oriented youth organizations, when they want to do certain activities uh, of education or, or training or open a summer school or, or a seminar, they would receive uh, fundings from still the ministries. So um, yes, in, on the one hand, the big municipalities like Istanbul, they cut their funds and they won't be getting those immovables maybe in the future. But of course, they still have these rather non-transparent budgets and they still accept, I think, individual donations. And this creates still a big financial power source for them. And they will continue to have this, in my opinion. 
I suppose one argument that they might make as well is that, that the opposition has its own favourite groups and, you know, when they will take control of local municipalities or other institutions, hypothetically, they would have their own favourite groups that they would support and they will automatically become sort of government-supported or civil society groups. Do you think that's a fair argument? I don't know if the opposition have, at the municipal level at least, they would have an interest to do it and, in the end, who they would be supporting because... Normally, it is the ministries who would do the project funding. And the granting of certain immovables that belong to municipality, to those uh, uh, government-friendly, government-oriented youth organizations, was something informal and down through the personal links. And it is something new that started to happen during the AKP government, actually. And it is not something, a practice that dates back to, I don't know, decades ago. It has started in the last decade and grown out of these this informal links, simply because these government-oriented youth organizations have quite close organic links with the government. And several of them have high-level AKP representatives in their boards, or people from Erdogan's family heads these organizations. They are in the managerial board as a or, or, or in the advisory boards of these organizations. And that means that uh, behind the closed doors, they can lobby the government, they can push certain issues, and they can ask for certain benefits. So, of course, I mean, it would be speculative if we say that CHP would do the same. Which organizations? Because the opposition currently does not have certain organizations that would have similar links to the party, as far as I know. But the AKP has those uh, youth organizations or even other organizations with close links to the government and their high representatives, higher uh, government officials, actually. Now, one uh, group that constantly pops up in the in the article and mm-hmm. indeed in the news is uh, Turgev or the Turkey Education mm-hmm. and Youth Services Foundation. Uh, it's one of the most prominent mm-hmm. of uh, or well known of these groups. Mm-hmm. I think on its board or even its chair is uh, the son of uh, President mm-hmm. Erdogan, Bilal Erdogan. Could you mm-hmm. just talk about how Turgev developed? You know what it is, what kind of mm-hmm. services it does, and what its profile is, mm-hmm. how it's changed perhaps in recent mm-hmm. years. Just give us the, the lowdown essentially on this. Sure. On this group. sure. Sure. Uh, well, Erdogan is not heading this uh, organization. He serves in the high consultative committee and he's really regarded highly within the organization. When I speak to representatives, they are proudly mentioning him as a member of the high consultative committee. And if you see the public events of Turgay, like opening up a new branch at any part of Turkey, that he would be there like as, as a guest of honor and, and the, during the opening ceremony, giving a speech. And he always speaks at the annual meetings, so on and so forth. So yes, I mean, Turgev, they have opened branches across Turkey, literally 81 cities, they have branches. And of course, they use this organizational power to reach out to different age groups of youngsters, starting from the secondary school to the working age. And uh, as I discussed in the paper, uh, I think we can categorize the way that they reach out to youngsters in four subtitles. So the first and the prob- probably the most prominent area is what I call like the indoctrination through camps and schools. And it is really the common way of engaging youngsters ideologically. So basically, uh, through these summer camps and and extracurricular activities outside the school, uh, they provide youngsters a way to socialize. And these camps are often run in gender segregated areas, for instance, and during summer times or the winter 
breaks of schools. And uh, most of the time, like half of the day is spared for religious education, like learning Quran and Islamic theology. And half of the day, usually youngsters uh, are involved in certain managed activities that are supposed to be fun, like engaging in some seminars or doing some visits or engaging in some sportive activities that are usually considered like our ancient sports, like archery or horse riding or shooting with air rifles and so on and so forth. So as I said, these provide some socialization and indoctrination venues away from families because most of the time, youngsters are always conveyed nationalist themes and official historiography or quite gendered values uh, combined with certain uh, Islamist and moralist values. And recently, uh, seminars or, or trainings at these camps involved issues related to Turkey's foreign policy, for instance, military excursions in Syria or uh, uh, the, the constitutional referendum, of course, always depicted in a positive uh, perspective. Uh, another way uh, they have been big organizations like Turgev engaging the youth is that they have for a while providing services in the edu- education sector through a wide network of dorms and scholarships. Some of them actually, the other ones, opened and offered their private schools in a way that they are also filling the state's withdrawal from the education sector because what we know is that during the AKP that the higher education and to certain extent also uh, higher school education have been privatized thanks to the neoliberalization of the education sector and they have asserted themselves as actors, as service providers in the education sector by offering decent and, and subsidized dormitories in, in almost every city where there is a university. And of course, their active involvement in the education sector has made these organizations kind of stakeholders in the education sector. And and, and organizations like TUGVA is also mobilizing youngsters a lot through street activism and humanitarian work. In the aftermath of the coup attempt, for instance, they organized youngsters to go on streets to join this uh, Respect for Democracy uh, uh, meetings. And uh, they also uh, often organize them to do demonstrations or press statements uh, when it comes to any issue area that is related to the AKP's foreign policy. It can be about Jerusalem, can be about Rohingya Muslims or something related to uh, uh, the, the massacre uh, in Yemen. So it's always oriented towards Turkey's foreign policy. The same thing applies for the humanitarian work. They go to areas, sub-Saharan Africa, Balkans, Pakistan, that are prioritized for the AKP's neo-Ottomanist, neo-imperialist foreign policy. And providing humanitarian work there for youngsters has become a source of national pride for them and assertion of Turkey's place in the world. And thanks to the youngsters, this is becoming possible. And Turkey can become a, a country with pride that helps the downtrodden all across the world uh, when it comes to voluntary activism. So uh, these organizations is serving at several levels, actually. I mean, they combine ideology, nationalism, propaganda, and material incentives to reach out to youngsters. And I think this makes them quite effective all, uh, all across Turkey. Now, a few years ago, uh, the Gulen movement was previously very active in a lot of the areas that we're talking about in concert, essentially, with the government. It was using its contacts with the government to spread into various areas and to expand its area of influence, essentially. But now, of course, uh, it's effectively been wiped out uh, within Turkey. How are mm-hmm. how has that shift really changed the, the landscape, essentially? You know, how are the uh, the new pro-government youth groups being encouraged to fill the vacuum that's mm-hmm. that was left behind by the, the, the wiping out, essentially, of the Gulen movement? 
so the, again, there is anecdotal evidence that certain sources of those schools that belong to Gulen network is confiscated by the state. And some of those sources in terms of buildings, etc., is kind of given to those government-oriented youth organizations. But of course, there it is difficult to confirm them because actually nobody knows what happened to the, all this confiscated property in Turkey. So this is uh, one thing. And, and second, of course, this has kind of created a vacuum after the, the purge of the Gulen network and closure of their schools. So these these new organizations that have allegiance to, to the AKP or have close organic links with the AKP, they have tried to kind of assert themselves as alternative organizations, but it doesn't mean that they have not met certain suspicion from youngsters and families. So when I spoke to some of those organizations, they were telling me that although youngsters need, for instance, and scholarships or dorms to live uh, when they leave their families, parents and students themselves, they are quite skeptical accepting those, those scholarships because fearing that the same thing might happen in the future to those organizations as well. So after the Gulenis purge, there is a suspicion towards all foundations and associations working with the youngsters. I think in order to overcome this suspicion, they have tried to assert, I mean, overdo even in, de- in declaring their allegiance to the AKP and the state. And this is a way for them to, I think, kind of gain trust both of parents and youngsters and also the government. They are really over and over emphasizing their allegiance to the government. They started to open a campaign uh, for, for instance, elections, particularly the constitutional referendum, openly calling uh, uh, and trying to mobilize youngsters uh, to vote in certain ways. And of course, they are trying to, in a way, fulfill the gap left by the Gulenists and the aim is the same actually because Gulen wanted to the Gulen community wanted to raise their own golden generation combining nationalist and religious or moral values the, in terms of aim it is not very different over and over the aim is, is coming up to the surface that they, that they want to cultivate a, a youth generation that would be pious loyal to, to, to the moral values loyal to the state away from the degeneration away from the radical ideologies what they call radical ideologies. So the aim is the same, but in terms of their open allegiance and loyalty, they are more partisan and they are openly embracing AKP. This is also to do with, of course, again, several of those organizations, the biggest ones like Turgiv, they have close organic links with the AKP uh, or Erdogan directly. Talking a bit more generally, the European Union has recently, I see, moved to to cut back uh, on its funding for various projects in Turkey. And I think I'm right in saying that it's basically limited the support that it will now give to Turkey to select NGOs and civil society groups. How do you view that step from Brussels? Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, and as far as my research tells me that the EU has cut funding that is given directly to the government to be dispersed to civil society through the government. So now EU is more selective and cut the, the, the financial sources that is distributed to the government, but instead taking the lead itself to distribute it to the civil society directly by the EU. So they basically cut 
cut the trying to cut cut the government as an intermediary in distributing aid to civil society. So I guess they're trying to ensure that their funding goes to rights-based, democratic and participatory civil society organizations. But on the other hand, when I speak to uh, Brussels or speak to the EU delegation in Ankara and ask them openly whether they are considering when they directly distribute funds to civil society organizations in Turkey, whether they would consider these government-friendly, government-oriented civil society organizations as potential beneficiaries. So the answer I got was quite cliche because what they told me is that, of course, we are not in a position to categorize civil society organizations in Turkey as government-friendly or not. What we would do is to evaluate those applications on a project basis. So if any organization comes with us with a project that would support a democracy, that would support human rights or rights of certain groups, we would consider them for potential funding. So this creates, uh, of course, a problem because when I speak to several uh, youth organizations that try to keep their autonomous stance and try to remain as rights-based and try to embrace Kurdish youth or LGBTI youth uh, that are not considered proper by the government, they were telling me that increasingly government-oriented civil society is learning how to put up those project applications, funding applications with the EU or other international donors, they have learned to adopt human rights discourse, they have learned to adopt rights-based discourse, and word them, put those words very well, incorporate them in their project funding, and they start to benefit certain international grants and funds, including the European Union ones. And this is going to be a big challenge in the future for international donors, because they might look at what they propose on paper, positive and, and democratic, what they propose on the, on, the, on the project. But if you look at uh, those organizations, what kind of values and what kind of ideologies they promote among youngsters, this might be a problem. And I think the European Union or other international donors are not equipped or even willing enough to really scratch the surface and see what those organizations are actually doing with the money that they have, they have received. And there were also quite a lot of criticism uh, towards UNICEF also, when I spoke to, again, those autonomous youth organizations that they knew that those camps, for instance, funded by the Ministry of Youth and Sports and operated by some uh, government-oriented civil society organizations, they knew that those camps are, for instance, run at gender-segregated locations. And this is against the basic principles of UNICEF, dividing uh, uh, youth according to gender. But they kind of close their eyes towards the issue. And, and autonomous youth organizations are quite critical of that. But I don't see any to be honest, any practical change in the future, as I said, that they are not prepared, they are not equipped to make a different differentiation, and they are also quite reluctant to do so because they don't want to be creating also sometimes political problems with the Turkish government, international donors, including the European Union. That was Bilge Yabanja. Many thanks to her. That was episode number 105 of Turkey Book Talk and our last episode this year. We won't be publishing an episode in two weeks as I'll be away for a Christmas holiday that I hope has been well earned. But we'll be back on the first Tuesday of January. We've already got a lot of interesting looking subjects and books lined up for 2020. So hopefully you'll be joining us for all of those. If you're a fan of the podcast, and I assume you are, otherwise presumably you wouldn't be listening unless you have some very strange predilections, do consider signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon to support it 
Membership gets you that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published. Transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish history and politics, literature and various other things. So to become a member and get all that, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like the Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So please do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to WilliamJohnArmstrong at gmail.com. One more thing before I say farewell for the year. I also want to give a quick recommendation for an excellent new weekly email newsletter on the Turkey News Agenda. It's called Turkey Recap and it's put together by Razier Akkoç and Diego Coppolo, two young but preternaturally level-headed journalists based in Ankara and Istanbul. It's a great one-stop shop giving you the lowdown of what's going on, what has gone on and what is due to go on down the pipeline in Turkey's manic news agenda, as well as links to recommended articles. Sign up by googling Turkey Recap or just follow the link that I'll put up at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com. Anyway, that's enough from me this year. So until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in three weeks, once again, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 